0: And welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are breaking down and discussing Perry roubaix the really, really, really exciting race wrapped up on Sunday. Um, in, in future weeks, I'll try to get this out sooner. I, I just had a lot going on. I was getting back from a long trip away. So this is a little bit delayed. And I apologize for that. But I'll just give a few quick notes up top about what I noticed from the race. If you want to dig deeper into it, I'll put a link to my 10 takeaways breakdown on the Beyond the Peloton newsletter in the show notes. And then I have Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast on to um, get some quick reactions from the race. Uh, We just talked a little bit after the race about what happened, how confused we were, um, what we liked. It's not, it's a little bit different speed than I normally do. I'm just trying out a little, some, some different stuff instead of me just breaking down the race solo i thought it'd be fun to change it up and have someone talk about it with me but just up top um just things we don't get to in the conversation that i wanted to mention um, obviously dylan van Baro, awesome, amazing win um, impressive race from Ineos. it was a little tricky for them they broke the race up with like 212k to go everything kind of the wheels kind of fell off that with like 147k to go when they got on the cobble sections gana flats uh break it's up the road with matty motorich they're not represented in it so then they have to chase the whole day but you know, you really don't want to overcomplicate things at Roubaix. It's just get guys up the road, get people in front of the race and good things will happen. I mean, it sounds overly simplistic. It's kind of a tactic you'd use in junior racing or youth racing, but that that's kind of the name of the game at Roubaix. You know, normally it happens later. This was an incredibly early move at Roubaix, but you know the ethos is the same. It's hard to come back. It's hard to make up time on a group that's ahead of you. That's why you see it's one of the rare races where early breakaways will win, um, like Matt Heyman. and I believe that was 2016. It's just it's a tough race to ride a different speed than anyone else because of the cobblestones. There's there's almost there is drafting technically, but you're not cruising along in the wheels. You're not gaining a huge advantage by being in the, someone's wheel. So. It just makes it so important to be in that front move. And and Ineos really cracked that code. They got seven guys up the road. Um, David Burgett from a reader of Beyond the Peloton commented on my pre-Roubaix piece that Ineos would use their grand tour tactics of, you know, getting the whole team at the front and breaking the race up early. I didn't actually catch that until after the race. It was like almost creepy to read it because he called it perfectly pretty much. And that's exactly what they did. I thought it was a really interesting tactic, using your team's strength to break the race up long before anyone thought you would. Um, it really only worked because they caught a lot of favorites out. Matthew Vanderpoel, uh, Matt, yeah, Matthew Wout Van Aert, and Stefan Kuhn being the three favorites, probably the three biggest favorites. Two of those guys finished on the podium, and it, and it made them chase. You know, if if those guys are in the move, it probably doesn't work. They just sit up because what's the point of burning your whole team with that much distance to go if the favorites are there but if they're if they're isolated what they did is they essentially leveraged ghana's massive motor i mean ghana really was the reason they were able to do this but they also had you know they had a former world champion miau Mieke, kievkowski also pulling in that group so it put a lot of pressure on van art and Vanderpol. and some people um i think andrew had this point and some people in the comments that you know maybe Vanderpol and van art weren't sure of their form so they weren't really, that's why they weren't stressing it in the group behind, but I'm not sure about that. I mean, Van, Van Hart was so good. He, he was really looked like he had this race under control in the last 40 kilometers. Um, just screwed up, I think, and let Dylan Van That was a big mistake. If he had it, if he could do it over again, I don't think he would let that happen. But really the, if, if we're going to pinpoint their major mistake, it's not closing that gap down, um, when it's about 210 K to go and it's a 20 second gap they probably could have sprinted across that gap right there and saved themselves 5 hours of chasing. They didn't do it. They were they looked really relaxed. They looked like they thought they weren't that concerned about the entire Ineos team riding away. Um, and and I think they paid for it. I think that's the reason Ben Barrow could ride away from Wout van Aert at the end because he had been up the road. It's a lot easier to be at the front and let the race come to you than it is to try to you know chase on for 5 hours and catch up to the race. So I, if I'm pinpointing one Thing. I think that's where the big mistake was made on Van Aert's part and that's where the big um, the advantage swung in Van Barlow's favor a lot happened after that um, I, I do recommend checking out the newsletter I'm not just trying to uh, plug my own newsletter it was such a complex race that it really took a couple, I had to watch the race a couple times and and go through and to try to figure out exactly what happened. But I thought I did a decent job of summing it up in that piece. A few other funny notes from this race are not funny, just impressive things that I I couldn't fit into the newsletter where that if I quizzed you after the race, who's the strongest team in this race? Um, Obviously, Ineos did a great job, but like the the best team performance, it's it's Intermarche. They had five riders in the top 20, six in the top 23. Um, just as a reminder, you only start the race with seven guys, so that's hugely impressive. I mean, I was so impressed with Intermarche, and there was a point where I was taking notes during the race, and I had Intermarche is is in the best position in this race. Like, they were the only team with a rider up the road, riders in the chase group. It, it was really impressive what they did. Um, I'm going to break down, I think, on Wednesday, tomorrow, um, the best Belgian teams in the Cabo Classics. I think Intermarche might have had the best spring. Um, Alpesen, obviously won Flanders with Vanderpool, but they didn't really have the depth that Intermarche did. In um, Quickstep, just, oh, terrible, terrible spring. And, and I know they suffered a lot of bad luck. People pointed that out in the comments. Um, even Oliver Nason, when we talked to him earlier this year, mentioned that. But yeah, just I was just not super impressed with, with anything they did this spring. Um, Kasper Askren, I, I love him. I'm a huge fan of his. Um, I know he was sick and it just seemed like he was never quite in the form that he had last year, which is understandable that happens, but I don't know if they've, I don't think they've kept up even with, if you think Intermarche has probably out-recruited them over the past few years and that's pretty wild. You know, I have have a graph in front of me or on my other computer upstairs where it shows a prime prime age of a writer and then the age of the quick-step writers and they're either almost all too young to be in their prime or too old to be in their prime and that shows just mismanagement of the roster at the top level so i I think they got you know a crude example or crude saying would be like high on their own supply where they just believed the hype that whoever they put out there could be a potential winner and and in in some respects the game changed on them like a few years ago eves lampard and tenechelle those guys are incredibly good at riding the cobbles and they maybe could have competed for a win here and i know eves had some bad luck running into that Spectator, but you know he was too far over in the road, and he was probably over there because he was too tired. Because the top riders in these races are just getting better and better. I mean, Dylan Van Barrow is not even really a cobbled rider; he's just kind of an all-around jack of all trades, great rider. Same thing with Wout Van Aert, Stefan Kung, Matej Motoric. I mean, those are not cobbled specialists. And then my last point on this is, as we're seeing, the cobbled specialists kind of die on the vine, so to say. Um, Belgian riders are becoming less dominant in these cobbled classics. They used to rule these things. Now, outside of Van Art, there's not a lot of, you know, they still have great performance. It's like Tom Devendrant and fourth, but they just don't have the dominance they used to over these cobbled races as we've seen just more generally strong riders come in and seem capable of just kind of figuring it out over the cobblestones, not having to be specialists. All right. So we will get into my conversation
1: with Andrew right now. I'm pulling up your recap email. It's phenomenal! It's dynamite. I uh, uh, go ahead. This
0: this was just a hard, a hard race to recap. <laughs> I watched it live, and I'm just like, I have no, I, I don't know anything. <laughs> like, I don't know what the fuck I just watched.
1: It was like so chaotic. I think that's part of what is so amazing about what's happening in professional cycling right now. It's a new epoch. It's an era when there are so many strong riders that you don't know what's going to happen. And I'm thinking back on like the Bonin era, the Cancellar era, the gladiator is who was known. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? It used to be, you'd, you'd go into a race like this and there might be two to four people who might have a chance of winning. It was highly organized. And I was actually thinking about this in the context of there's, it's not even a formula. Like, it's it's a totally new approach to racing. And I'm sure we're going to get into this when we talk about Enios because, you know, hindsight being 2020, what they did looked brilliant. But we've also seen them try this many times before, both in stage races and in one-day races. Recently, the strategy seems to be paying off where they're disrupting the typical pattern of a race and attacking at unexpected times, splitting the field, taking advantage of crosswinds, echeloning, whatever, to split the field early in the race at a moment that's typically a much more chill moment in the race. But we've also seen it not work before. And yeah, there's a lot to unpack here.
0: Yeah. It's actually like the defining feature of that strategy is that it doesn't work. Like they always set it up for someone else. It was a little crazy. I I was traveling the last week. Wasn't really paying attention to like comments on beyond the Peloton. And I went in this morning and someone, this was like two days before the race. This guy's name is David Burkett. And he was like, basically outlined exactly what Ineos was going to do at Roubaix, which if I would have read that at the time, I would have been like, what is this guy talking about? Like, you can't just blow Roubaix up with 220 kilometers to go. That doesn't make any sense. But it's, it's almost like they stumbled upon the perfect classic strategy via the stage races where it's, you know, like if you do this in a stage race, you're probably not dropping Pogacar or Roglic. You're going to go to a 7k climb at 9% and they're just going to drop your guy. Like you have to have the strongest rider to make it work in a stage race. But I mean, Van Boro is very good. Like he's a very good rider, probably not the best rider in the race, but just the fact that he was in the front and didn't have to chase for, I mean, those Van Aert and Vanderpool were chasing for like five hours. Like that's going to help you in the finish of the race. And like, it's so it's like what you're saying we, we don't have a formula anymore there's no more boon and no cancellara like some guys are pretty good maybe better than others but it's so even at the end of the race is like if you can set a rider up like that it's enough that they could win versus even major
1: stars if you can right if you can set up a rider and while i did not pick the winner of this race and i did not Make my pick public. It was my belief going into the race that someone from Enios would win. As you know, Spencer, in spite of your warning that <laughs> no one, no one in this uh, height weight ratio had ever won the race or, in your opinion, had any chance of winning, I did pick. I said Pickcock was going to win. I revised my pick prior to the race, but I did. I just had this feeling that Enios. It felt like they needed. I mean, every team needs a win, but they just felt I got I had this gut feeling like this was gonna be their day. They were gonna put it together, they were gonna try something. And again, they've had some success recently, but prior to the last couple of weeks, their season was looking pretty rough. And the luster of early Sky and early Enios just seemed to be fading, right? Like they they didn't seem like a team who had a formula to put together wins anymore. And as we've seen in in recent weeks, it's really starting to come together. But I do think it's a question of whether have they figured out an actual winning formula or in the case of this race, did they just roll the dice on something and it worked out? And also it might not matter, right? Like winning is winning. Yeah, I definitely
0: do think there's an element of rolling
1: the dice and it
0: working. Really, if you like, if you bake, especially Roubaix down to its like most basic elements, like, you, you know, this is if I was a like coach of a junior team, it's just like, it's easier to be in front of the race than to catch up to the race. Like, you know, even get in an early breakaway because then the race is coming to you on these really hectic races. It's so hard. Like, I could not believe Van Aert and Vanderpool were just sitting there just like letting that gap grow and grow. Like, you're going to have to invest you know, it's like reverse venture investing. Like the time you're letting go now is going to be worth 400 times the effort later down the line. And, you know, I think Ineos, it looked risky. The strategy could have, they could have lost the race. You know, they kind of did blow up in their face. Like they, with 150K to go, they had like no one in that lead group, which was a little odd. But I think if you, just that the basic element, just get guys in the front group and you might not win, but that's the way you should. Race this, and you know I don't think you can like take this to you know if you try to go to Flanders with the strategy, it probably doesn't work. Like it's kind of a Roubaix specific thing, and if you try to do it again, and the leaders are with you, it probably doesn't happen because you're not going to invest resources. Like they were burning Ghana up 200 kilometers from the finish line. Like that's a little crazy. So it kind of depended on the fluke of the fluke being that the favorites were not with them, but. Sh- I have to imagine in the future that was going to happen. It's still not clear to me what, I don't know if they just thought that was a ridiculous thing to do to ride so hard, so early. It's not clear to me why, if you go back and watch it, Van Art's teammate was the original guy who formed the echelon and then he's in the back. I I don't know what was going on there. I'd love to find more about more out more about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think both with Wout and Vanderpoel, watching the race, they just seem to, again, it's tough to say and, and easy to say when you're spectating versus being in the race and trying to close a gap once a split like that is formed, but they didn't seem particularly panicked. And watching on television, I just didn't get the sense that either Wild or MVDP were going to be factors later in the race. It also, in retrospect, it almost seemed as though they, they weren't concerned for a moment and were content to let that Right off the front and try to split the field because perhaps they had a very low level of confidence that that was actually a successful strategy. I mean, that's another, true, yeah, right. I mean, another question that I have here, and again, like we need to talk to some DSs to find out how various teams were thinking about this. But there is fairly teams have fairly complete information in terms of weather and crosswinds now and. You know, the idea of using a crosswind to split the field at an unexpected moment early in a race, I'm going to forget. You probably know, Spencer, I can't recall, but I mean, we've seen this happen during the tour on that one section over the cobblestones where it only happens at low tides. I for, I'm forgetting which oh, stage. The Passage it was.
0: At, <laughs> they used to race it at full speed. I don't think they do it anymore because obviously it's a crazy thing to do. But I think it was in '99. Armstrong like got his first right. big gap on that, yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm, they they blew things up and immediately got a huge gap, split the field in a very unexpected way because they anticipated crosswinds at a moment when other teams weren't thinking about it. Fast forward in 2022, it's my strong belief based on talking to people inside the sport. Everybody's thinking about this, right? I mean, uh, I don't know if you watched the. Uh, gosh was it last year or 2 years ago i believe there is a documentary inside the yumbo visma team and i believe that they have a guy who goes up the road during races to you know they have the, uh, they have the data on the weather and then they have somebody go up the road to actually check and do like a physical examination of what are the conditions wh- which way is the wind blowing that then gets radioed back to the riders and the team director, and then they're sometimes making these types of determinations about what moves are going to to happen at which moment. Equally, when we think about, this is something I reflected on a lot watching the race yesterday, and I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. As you and I have talked about previously, the ground is undefeated and in the history of combat sports and cycling. like So many unexpected things happen at the interface of a rider's tires in the road. And we saw a lot of people take spills yesterday. We saw mechanicals. You have the factor of feeding and trying to get your nutrition right in a race where it's incredibly hard to focus and just stay on your bike, right? So you have all of that going on. Then you think about the weather and all these other complexities, hydration, before you even get to a rider's physical performance and positioning just such an incredibly complex differential equation and to do the right things at the right moment. I mean, this is why these are the world's best professionals in the sport. Equally getting it right is incredibly complicated and perhaps more so in this race than almost any other on the calendar. I I totally agree. And then two things that I thought of after I sent the newsletter and I was just thinking
0: about when you were talking as, as far as this not working for Ineos if you go back and watch the race, it's really just Ghana. Like, Ghana pulls that gap out. It's pretty big. By the time they hit, that's like a minute 15 when they hit the first cobble sector. He flats, and then you're like talking about the ground being undefeated. He flats. The gap shrinks from, like, 115 to, like, 30 seconds in two kilometers. So, potentially, Vanderpool and Van Hart were thinking, well, we're just, these bozos are going to run out of gas when we hit the cobbles. We're going to catch them, but... I you know, why it's good why you don't want to get too cute at Roubaix is there's a huge crash, you know, of course, three kilometers into the first cobble sector, like magna Sheffield, who we'll talk about later, like American phenon crashes because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing because he's 19 years old. And it like holds them up. So like that that's a really weird thing about roubaix is like you have a crash you could not be involved at all be 30 seconds behind cruising and then you can't get through you know it's like there's these roads are crazy they're so small it's so hard to get mechanical assistance in there and then like the chase group literally had to stop and then that's when kind of the bigger gap opened and like four enius riders got up the road so I, I was a little hard on Vanderpool and van Ar early on but now that i'm thinking just thinking about that incident it's like oh maybe they probably would have reeled them in by the second cobble sector had that crash on occurred. But as you bring up, like there's the variable, like Roubaix is like the king of variables. Like this is just stuff comes up. I mean, I saw so many missed water bottles. Like I didn't understand. It looked kind of hot. Like I didn't understand how like anyone's getting a water bottle. They average 30 miles an hour, which means on the paved sections, when you're getting a water bottle, they must be going 33, 34. Because presumably they're going slower on the cobblestones where you can't really feed. So Yeah, I don't understand how anyone was getting any nutrition, but they must be like the new thing in cycling now is to like you just drink like a shit ton during efforts. Which, if like when you and I were getting into training, probably wasn't emphasized as much as it should have been. And like people just eat like you eat really as much as you can stomach during a ride. And it can, you know, that's why we were seeing people will say like, oh, EPO, like they're doping. That's why they're so fast late in the race. But I never saw anything like this during the EPO era. Like they were doing serious attacks five hours into what I have to imagine. That was an all out effort. The race was five and a half hours. Like people were in the wheels for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then pretty much just riding as hard as you can for close to five hours. So I was really in awe of like the nutrition that they were able to to plan and then to take on while going so fast over such a difficult terrain. I mean, normally you can just grab stuff from the team car, but you're not doing that at Roubaix, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I saw a lot of missed bottles as well. And one of the thoughts that I had during the race, Spencer, watching Cameron Wirth, the number of times that he went down, the number of of different cobble sectors where he sampled the soil, um, so to speak, I felt like he could do a pairing of the soil from different cobble sectors (laughs) and and regional beers, perhaps if you wanted to, but I wanted to jump back to something that you said a moment ago, the impact Ghana had, and we know what a motor he is. And we also know that he was being hyped a bit prior to the race. And I saw in interviews, I mean, he said, Hey, I I don't really know why I'm being hyped because I I don't know how I'm going to do in this race. But I did get the sense that that was that was a bit of a a narrative that was emerging prior to the race. There was information about Ghana training with this massive fixed gear getting ready to just motor away at the race. I kept thinking of Avon Drago um, for some reason. But do you think that Enios went into this race with the intention of a specific writer doing well? Or do you think they just were kind of like, hey, let's throw a bunch of stuff at the wall? And we'll see if anyone ends up in the right move. I love that idea. I, I love the
0: idea that they went in and everyone was a leader. I don't think that's what happened because a Ghana was amazing. Like if you saw him when he flatted early and he was chasing on, it's like Cancellara's older brother. <laughs> it's like I don't know if it was, if in, I've ever it was seen, insane. It was insane yeah, anyone ride that fast on the cobblestones. Like, so it's odd that he was not riding for the win, but if you go back and watch where the split happens, Kievkoski and Ghana are the first ones to really drill it. That tells me, and Vin Barrow was barely ever at the front of that. So they probably were protecting Vinbaro. I'd imagine if you're having, it must have been a plan. I, maybe they came up with that on the road, but I would imagine they, they had two protected riders. Oddly, Ben Turner, who I, not, I would never have guessed him to be in the final group was like their second best rider, pretty impressive from him. Um, I would have thought Kievkowski and Van Barl and Ghana would be their three protected riders, but they seem eager to burn those guys early. So I definitely think they had a plan. I, I and if they did have like everyone figure it out on the road, I don't think what would have happened would have happened because everyone would be holding back for their own leadership chances. I don't know how you get Felipe Ogana to buy into working for someone at Roubaix. It like, looks like that should be just what he does full time for his job. But he's just like, I mean, that's crazy to have a domestique like him. Like, I don't think people quite understand how powerful he is. Like, his FTP is probably. So, <laughs> I don't know if you follow Pogacar's coach on Twitter, Inigo San Milan. He was like tweeting about like, only idiots say FTP. So now I'm like, I use that word like five times a day. Now I'm like conscious about it. But it's probably. 550 watts I mean, You know he can do that for an hour so when he's on the flats or cobblestones doing like you know sub threshold 510, like that there's no one that can do that there's like that's pretty ridiculous yeah that's totally insane and yeah i mean if you i think he could i think he's like one of my like i almost feel like people are gonna think he's like my child like i love Filippo ghana i don't know if i've ever seen anyone quite as talented like i feel like he could win grand tours if he really wanted to he could be like a miguel and durain that's not a very fun life i can understand not wanting to do that but from what i saw yesterday it's like he could be winning roubaix and then he's on his team clearly the strategy was the right strategy if they don't win i'm probably like what a bunch of idiots felipe Ogana should have been their leader but the fact that they got him to work for Van i mean that's really what made the difference the fact that they could get their whole team up the road and they didn't have to chase all day.
1: Right. And I think this is another paradigm shift that has happened in cycling. Really, it feels like in the last three years, but I think that the wave is starting to crest right now and it might not be a crest. We might just see this moving forward. But if we think back to some of the biggest rivalries in the history of cycling, they have been on teams where you have two world-class riders capable of winning a race. And when teams go, it used to be that when teams went into a race like the Tour, with the strategy of "we'll let the road decide," like look at Hino you know, Lamond, right, or any of a number of other examples. Historically, it never worked out. Now we see major teams going to the Tour with two two riders who are capable of winning the Tour, and this idea of like we're going to let the road decide. And now, as we saw at Perry Roubaix. Team's coming in with multiple riders potentially capable of winning and actually executing a coordinated strategy. And as one option falls by the wayside, shifting resources and advancing the cause of another rider. And uh yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's different, it's a different era of cycling and kind of amazing to see. And I'm really curious about what's actually happening behind the scenes because these are human beings. They have egos. Their contracts are dependent on their own personal performance and I'm sure their reputation and how cooperative they are and what they can bring to the table. But how they personally perform is of paramount importance to their financial and professional success in the future.
0: Yeah. I mean, two thoughts about that is it, it's like works with buy-in like Ineos is actually a good example of it not working like if they went they went to the tour last year and it felt like everyone was kind of doing their own thing like Richie port and Garrett, like guarantee Thomas tried to leave the race and they're like no you're not leaving like you're you have to stay here so it's like <laughs> it, it I, i've seen it not work more than it works but yesterday was like the perfect example of that working i think what helps is money like if you can afford just to throw cash at people You'd you'd be surprised at the buy-in you can get to work for the team, and even I was talking to um like a former racer earlier this week about like buying that like it used to be common if you just kept cash on you because you could buy races in the race if you got into a breakaway. Like I don't think that's happening anymore because the win is so valuable because it can get you a big money contract on a team like Yumbo or Ineos. So. You know, people like in soccer they love to be like yo like money ruined the sport like the sports become big business but in cycling's case it's actually helped the product quite a bit because you don't have like you have people just racing so hard and selling out for their teammates because the money they get from their team is so is so high so it's really like i mean i couldn't believe how hard the race was yesterday like that is and it's a, definitely a trend. I talked to Oliver Nason a few weeks ago and he was saying it's just like post-COVID especially, like races are hard from start to finish, which makes sense because if you, as Ineos proved yesterday, it's like we all have these preconceived notions of like, I wake up at this time because the set pieces at Roubaix are X, Y, and Z. But Ineos was like, well, wait a second. It's a 257 kilometer course. Why would we not use the whole course as a way to win the race? Like, why are we waiting for the arm forest to make a move like why not do it earlier so i think money has a lot to do with that and you know when you can train riders better you can get better quality riders like those are really good riders that were setting pace yesterday on Ineos. like that's kind of crazy that you could have them as like kiev a amstel gold winner and a world champion and
1: he was the first rider they were burning it's it's pretty wild Spencer, that's making me think about the future. And I'm thinking about something, if we were to look forward on the race calendar and something that would seem completely insane, but could we consider the idea that the final day of the Tour de France, the stage on the Champs-Élysées, which is traditionally a sprint stage, do you think in the near future we might see that turn into an actual contested stage that's disrupted and turned into something other than a parade that ends with a sprint? It's so funny you that. I think about that way too much. Um, we've seen a hint of this
0: with Vino. Vino won in a breakaway in 2005, if you remember.
1: I don't. And it's like Same word. Yeah, tot-
0: <laughs> totally crazy because it's. I always thought it was like an understanding that it was for the sprinters and you weren't really supposed to contest it. And Alexander Vinokurov was just like, no, nah, I'm going to just attack with three kilometers to go and win the race solo. Surprised that hasn't been replicated since. But if, like, the the margin of these Grand Tours are getting smaller and smaller, like going into the Giro in 2020, it was tied on the last day. What if that was the tour? Like, thought you know, just do a thought experiment there. Like, you have to sprint it out for the bonus points on the Champs-Elysees, and then the finishing positions are really important. So I definitely think we'll see that. I mean, it's only a matter of time before we have a sub 10-second gap. It sounds crazy, but if you go back through the last, like, let's say seven Grand Tours, many were more than a minute like not there's not many gaps that were more than a minute so only a matter of time before we get like a 10 second gap and then the other thought experiment is this will happen eventually it almost happened with chris Froome. what if someone crashes and breaks their collarbone on that last day like what would happen Then i would love to see like my fear is that they would like nullify the stage after the fact but that would be a fantastic mess to watch happen. Because if you remember like Port, Richie Port can't really ride without his hands on his bars. And he was like had his hands over Chris Room, and then almost crashed his bike and took out Chris Room. So we almost got a taste of that recently, but it will happen soon. You're sick. <laughs> I I like oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it is it is disgusting, but I cannot wait to dare to you. like the con just like the five days of content on that are gonna be amazing.
1: It, um, I think it's I think it,
0: it's coming. One thing I was going to mention is, I was thinking about this yesterday too, outside of every classic race we've had this year, two riders have won more than one. It's Wout Van Aert and Matthew Van Der Poel. Those guys are very good, like historically good. Other than that, we've had no repeat winners. And then, of course, Van Der Poel and Van Aert only took one of the two big ones, Flanders and Roubaix, which is like... We're like in a golden age of parody, especially when it comes to the with the grand tours might be a little road at the moment with Pogacar and Roglic, but as far as one days, it's it's wild the parody we're getting. Like it's almost unbelievable. Like, sure, Ineos won three races this week, but I wouldn't, you know, they're very good. I think they'll continue to be good in classics for a few years, but they're not going to win everything. Like, and they won those races, with just kind of like good honest tactics of Playing teammates off each other. Like, that's kind of the oldest tactic in the book. It's not like they're doing anything super revolutionary. So, I've just been shocked with it's a good sign, A, for doping. Like, if you want to watch for doping, distorting, distorting the races, it's one rider or one team just like riding away. Kind of if you remember stage one of Perry Nice and everyone, Yumbo had three riders rip off the front, and people were like, oh, this is just like the 90s. It's like, by, by the end of that week, we saw that they probably paid for that effort. And there's a reason you don't come into Perry nice with your tip-tip-top form on stage one. So, yeah, I was just, like, encouraged, A, from, like, a doping standpoint, and then, B, from a competition standpoint. Like, you go into these races, you have no idea who's going to win. Like, I don't even think Dylan Van Barre was – I don't think they were offering – he wasn't on the odds board, on BetMGM at least. Like, that's pretty crazy that the winner – would not you would not even be able to place a bet on him because he's that like quote unquote obscure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I th- I think you're right. I th- I think another interesting aspect of the the recent rise of Enios that we've seen, and kind of like this feel-good narrative that I think the victory conferred upon them yesterday, when I think about how cycling fans during the, like let's call it like the sky early Ennios era, when it they more or less seem to have a formula, like a formula that we talked about is now seems to have been disrupted in terms of Grand Tours particularly, but they almost had that like postal discovery, like Death Star kind of approach to winning races. And I feel like it was kind of boring and alienating fans. Then there was, of course, the whole jiffy bag fiasco. Who knows what happened there? But I feel like this victory just is something any cycling fan can get behind. And I feel like it's going to make people feel and has made people feel differently about the team and about the, what they're doing in the sport. But I mean, that's just conjecture. What do you think about that Spencer?
0: Yeah. So like they, you're right that it is more feel good. It's way more fun. Their party line. Like, you know, in your old career, you would have been the one brewing up the message is that it's like you know we're doing this for the fans to like give back to the sport they're doing like you know they're using their budget and their talent to blow races up instead of control them because they no longer have the best individual riders in the sport right so like they controlled the tour last year for unknown reasons and maybe just muscle memory and like <laughs> they just took Tadej pogacar to a win so that they should have figured it out before then but that that no longer helps them that tactic of gluing the race together and just sitting on the front so it's definitely very fun it's makes me like them more but i I mean they're doing it because it helps them win because they no longer have the best riders not because it's like a good time for us they don't care about that as they should as they should not but i also wanted to mention so dylan van barl like a relative nobody like if i ask you to name three facts about him you probably couldn't If you take like the last seven months, I'd say he's the best one day rider in the sport, like second at world championships, second at Flanders, first at Roubaix. That's a better if you, you know, if you treated this like a cross country race or like we're aggregating results against everyone else, like he's better than, than all those big names. Like it's kind of an interesting narrative where, you know, I think his director uh, Roger Hammond said yesterday, like if. Vanderpol had his, had Van Barl's results, like people would be jumping out of their houses, you know, cause it's like, they're so excited, but you know, it's like, oh yeah, well he's pretty good. He won Roubaix and he, he podiums at every major race, but nah, like whatever. Like it's just kind of interesting to me that he's so obscure and like, gets almost no love from the mainstream media. But if you just look at the stats, the guy's really good, really good. And he was on Garmin. I don't know if you remember this. He got fourth in 2017 at Flanders. And Vonders was kind of shitting on him. He's just like, you know, like, it's really impressive. We can come to a race like this and get a top five with a rider like that. <laughs> it's like, clearly he didn't know what he had. You know, it's like, I, it's unclear to me why they let him walk. Like, they should have recognized that he was like a serious one day contender. And he's pretty good in at working in stage races too. So looking back, that's like a wild decision from Garmin to underrate him and just kind of like let him go to Ineos.
1: Yeah. Looking at, uh, I think Jonathan Vaughters is an incredibly interesting character. I've very early in the Garmin trajectory wrote a bit about, uh, the team spent some time with Jonathan great guy. And what I've observed is that I think a lot of us who are cycling pants have observed this, but he's often using, uh, his media appearances, his podcast appearances to gain leverage in negotiations with writers and with that specific instance i'm just curious during what time of the season and at what point in the negotiation cycle that might have occurred when he made that comment and it's maybe less so now that he doesn't own the team
0: but i feel like back then it was like always pumping the team so you know he's he can't say yeah this is like one of the best young writers in the world and like we're lucky to have him and he's the only reason we're doing well in these races like incentivized to promote the team the team being responsible for his success sure I and mean, n- now in retrospect it's clear that he's just like very good and i mean some of it he doesn't win races worlds i think if you go back and watch worlds it's very impressive what he did uh but he doesn't you know van will like make things overly hard for himself and it looks so impressive when he wins that you know that's kind of what captures our imagination not sitting in the wheels for 235 kilometers and then like powering away with 18k to go because you're so much more rested than everybody else not exactly like a sexy way to win a bike race
1: and spencer perhaps of equal importance he stayed on his bike and he had tires that remained inflated he did change a bike once if you go do a close watching of the race with like 106
0: kilometers to go i didn't have this in the newsletter because i was getting like a message that it was too big but he changed bikes i don't know i didn't see anything wrong with his bike so i was curious like if he just didn't like it didn't think that the tire pressure was right but he did it in a way where he dropped back from the he drops out of the lead group gets a bike change pops right in with van art and vanderpoel right as they're about to catch the front group really doesn't didn't lose anything with a bike change at roubaix which is almost impossible to do so super impressive by him but yes this brings us to our next point i mean just up top did it, it didn't seem like there was a ton of flat tires to you or was this am i just like misremembering
1: roubaix it's it seemed insane and Before we go too deep on flat tires, though, I do have a flat tire and Enios related question. So to go way back to earlier in the conversation when we were talking about Ghana and whether he was the designated leader on Enios going into the race, we talked about all the work that he did, how he really was driving that split. And then once he had his flat, the time gap dropped. Something that jumped out at me is no one from the NEO's team dropped back to tow him back up or to work with him. And I know, you know, did you read anything into that? And I also know in these races, there's a lot of chaos at that point, perhaps strategy shifts, but that did really jump out to me and perhaps signaled he wasn't a designated writer because no one stopped to help him.
0: Yeah. I did read that as a, he's not a designated writer. I also wonder, you know, this could go really wrong. I'm just trying to think through the different scenarios now. Perhaps they had a policy of no one drops back for anybody because if Ghana's dropped, we lose him. We're better off with six people in the front group than sending someone back. You know, Roubaix is so tough, so tough to get back on. And they, they also knew there's a freight train led by Vanderpool and Van Art, 35 seconds behind us. So he's going to have a group to get on. You know, if, if he's in the lead group, I I think Roubaix is such an odd race, though. Let's say Ghana and Magna Sheffield are in the front group. Ghana flats out of it. They probably just, you know, you're best better off with Magna Sheffield staying in that front group because it's so hard to make those front groups at Roubaix that you don't worry about pacing people back on, no matter how good they are. I know that's kind of how I read it, like INIO's having a really dispassionate, leadership strategy like that. Just totally cutthroat.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I do think that this is one of the small technological nuances as we have made the move from rim brakes to disc brakes. We have to talk about rim brakes at least a little bit, but it's not the case anymore that if you're a leader flats that you can just have someone stop and swap a, a wheel. I mean, I don't think anybody's carrying a hex key with them or, you know, practicing how fast they can change out a through axle. Basically... If you get a flat, you're waiting for somebody to give you a change who has a pneumatic tool or has a hex key. I mean, a rider is not going to give you or another rider on your team is not going to give you their wheel at this point. No, no.
0: And I did. You did see like if teams could do it, they were just giving people bikes. It's also it's unclear to me. Like, are they changing the wheel? They must be changing the wheels before they put it back on. Because like Van Art, flat it got a bike flatted, probably got the same bike that he was riding originally flatted, got the bike that he had before that. So someone must be changing those wheels or changing the tires, you know, before they put them back on the bike. And it's like, it's just a, like, you'd hate to be like flat. Oh, throw the bike on. Oops. He flatted again. Oh, this bike has flat wheels. I'm sure. It's happened at some point, but I did see a few teams with like the, you know, all the bikes come pretty much with just the Allen keys. Cause they look cooler. I did see a couple teams with the levers. I, I think that would be, yeah, as you're saying, when you're threading a through axle with your bare hand, like that's so slow. And even with the Shimano neutral, like if they couldn't get a team car and they had to get a wheel, it was not a fast process. That's be my big knock on disc brakes for those races where it's just so difficult to, to change your wheel. But, you know, you, you can run 30, probably 32 millimeter tires. So whatever downside you're having on the, on the wheel changes, you're, it's gotta be so nice to have the bigger tires. I wouldn't want to run a racer bay with anything less than a 30.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And from what I'm reading that, I mean, that's what was happening. Right. I mean, I think I know you wanted to get into this and so do I, but with the high volume of flats that we saw, you know, were we seeing tubeless flats were we seeing latex tubes flatting were we what were we seeing
0: so i dug into this a little bit also fun funny note 2018 not that long ago christophe runs tubeless tires because his team was sponsored by i think hutchison who wanted to promote their tubeless they're 25 mil like he gets the first cobble section and like the bike blew up basically (laughs) like what are you doing 25 millimeter Tubeless, of course, you're going to burp all your air out of there immediately. Um, I, yeah, I couldn't find any rhyme or reason. So Ineos was on tubeless. Yumbo was on tubular. I think FDJ was on, it looked like, I can't imagine anyone was on tubes. That seems insane. And I think all the tubeless teams were, I don't know if you know, if you ever use these, these like Cush core inserts for the road bike. Seems like it adds a lot of weight and it didn't it, what is that for? Is it just for if you flat that you can ride for a little bit before you get a wheel change? Is is that what it does? It keeps it slightly inflated.
1: Yeah, I think that's what it does for professional riders. And I think for people who are not racing in the world tour, it's about not destroying your carbon wheels when you get a flat because there's as we know, if there's a high probability of, of that happening. Yeah. If you just like lose all the air in a tubeless tire, even if you ride a pretty short distance you might crack around yeah
0: and i saw i mean van art flatted right at the armberg forest like maybe right before it he got through the forest with his tubular which is like impressive that's the the beauty of the tubular but he seemed to suffer with a lot of flats and it, i was actually a little confused if it's hard for me to tell if they were flats these mechanicals were flats or drop change like change you'd see people kind of like reach down sometimes and i'm like is that someone taking their wheel off or is that someone like motor mate motorich i guess had a mechanical when it looked like he was maybe riding to the wind and i'm not still not sure what that was i have watched it like 50 times and he kind of reaches down i wondered if it was a drop chain which would go back to our conversation the last time we spoke where these 12 speed group sets seems to be like drop chains all over the place so I couldn't find any rhyme or reason with those flats. Like, it seemed like Yumbo had a ton of flats. They were running tubulars. Dugast, which is, like, the best tubular. And it seemed like Ineos also had a ton of flats, and they were running tubeless. So, I mean, I'd imagine you can go lower pressure with the tubeless. I'm not sure. These are big riders. Like, if you're Stefan Kuhn, how low do you want your pressure to really be? Like, you don't want to be on, like, a 40 PSI road tire in a road race it seems like you're just like asking for trouble on cobblestone so i've, I've not been a proponent i personally don't love tubeless on a road bike just because it's a pain in the butt to, to like deal with especially and there are issues when the pressure gets that high versus mountain bikes like you know you can have r- tires blow off your rims where like if you, if that's a possibility it seems like that's a risk i don't want to take if i'm a pro and i have someone to deal with all that for me i mean maybe that would be more appealing I think their whole shtick is though they decrease flats, which didn't seem like that helped at all. And I guess in theory, the rolling resistance is better, but at Roubaix, the rolling resistance is not helping probably because you're on like the worst roads you could possibly imagine. Maybe when you, a real nerd would tell you, oh, it's like, well, but you when you get into the velodrome, you're on like wood. So you want the tire with the best rolling resistance. And that could be the difference between getting first and third. So just kind of giving up i've i used to be like a tubular stand up for tubulars i'm kind of just giving up that they're going to go extinct and because it's hard to sell them to consumers sponsored sponsors don't want pros on them because no one in their right mind is going to buy a tubular for their own everyday use and tubeless will just take over but i didn't see a huge i just did not see like any advantage to running tubeless and it didn't seem like it helped the flats at all if anything it seemed like there's more flats but Maybe that's just because the race was so
1: fast. Yeah, I think it. Reflecting on, you know, the wet rubé that we had, and now that we've had subsequently a dry rubé, it doesn't seem like either condition yields more ideal or less violent results. Rubé is a violent race for the riders and for their equipment. Yeah, it'd be funny to have data on this. I didn't, yeah, see any
0: type of decrease, and it almost seemed more chaotic than last year's wet race, where that race almost followed the normal beats of a Roubaix, whereas this felt like a snow globe just got shaken up, and yeah, it seemed like a ton of flats. It seemed like a ton of crashes. It's yeah, it's like nature finds a way, like in Jurassic Park, where you're like ch- chaos will find a way at Roubaix. Like, it could be 75 degrees and sunny, and you're still gonna have. Tons of crashes and flat tires.
1: Well, ironically, I think at either end of the friction continuum, whether it's incredibly dry or not at the ends of the friction continuum, but whether it's incredibly wet and rainy and muddy or incredibly dry and dusty, you actually, I think, end up in the same place in terms of you're slipping and sliding all over the place. I mean, we saw that yesterday, right? Like it can be difficult to get traction if you're riding and it's Raining hard, it's hard to see. Like It can be hard to choose lines. Similarly, if you're in a freaking pig pen dust cloud, (laughs) riding behind a moto or in a group, like you have no idea what you're about to ride into and somebody might pop over and you end up dropping into a giant gap in the cobbles or hitting something that you don't see. So I, I think you kind of get the same results regardless of the weather conditions. Maybe there's some happy medium in the middle, but it might not make for as compelling of a, a televisual experience. Yeah. And did you see
0: Steve, not Steve bar I'm in the wrong year. Did you see Eve's Lampart run into that spectator when he was, I was surprised they didn't in most parts of the course, you know, if there there'll be like a bike path on the side of the cobblestones, it's smooth. And they, they were riding on that, but it's almost like, you know, like animals when they're like dying or like desperate or it's like, that's a crazy thing to do because you're so close to the fans and they normally block that off. It was for some reason open. And then of course he hit a fan, but like, that's just because he was, he was so tired and desperate for he was like craving smooth tarmac so much that he rode way too close to that fan. And then the guy was applauding and he just hit his hands and then crashed. But that it's funny because that team Every major spectator incident I can think of at Roubaix is with Quick Step, where it's like, I don't know what is going on in that team, but they're like riding, it's like just taking a massive risk just for a little bit of rolling resistance, which I was shocked by.
1: Yeah, I kept watching that wreck over and over. I, prob- I watched it probably 10 times trying to discern what happened. Clearly, what I saw and probably what you and everyone else saw, that spectator was clapping and he stuck his hands out like right at the moment when Lampard was coming by him, his hands made contact. I got the sense that the spectators clapping hands may have made contact with the rear brake lever and compressed it for a moment, causing him to go into a skid. And that's how he was pitched forward onto his top tube. And then that was such a gnarly wreck that was that's was like the worst type of wreck it's bad so so bad but i mean incredibly high speed and then i don't you know it looked like he was trying to counter steer to overcorrect and then he lost it and ended up endowing and flinging himself onto cobbles at you know at very very high speed it's just such a violent painful looking wreck And that spectator got, if you watch the full clip at full
0: speed, it's like a little set up because there's people standing in front of him in between him and the riders. Right. Like he's standing there clapping. They move back at the last second. And then he's probably like, oh shit, (laughs) I didn't know the riders were coming right at me. Cause I think he was like looking at the cobblestones, like expecting to see the race there. And then I I don't know if I've seen anyone like blame the organizers, but that's totally their fault. Like you got to block off the. The bike path. And I think, I don't know if you remember this, but this was like a big deal a few years ago. If you rode on the bike path at any of these races, it was like automatic TQ no matter what. And then now it seems like they've kind of relaxed that rule, but this is exactly why that rule was in place because it's super dangerous for people.
1: Yeah. That's a really good point because in the comments that I've seen following the race, there has been a lot of analogizing this incident to the high grandma incident at the tour last summer and you know, while the net effect is the same, like a rider has been harmed because of contact with the spectator. They don't actually feel the same to me because as you said, I think this spectator was on the side of the road, clapping his hands and you're right. I think his two buddies at the last moment kind of pulled back and then he was left there and should he have been standing back more probably, but I've seen things comparing it to oh spectators standing there taking selfies while riders come by. I don't know. Maybe the maybe that spectator had a camera in their hands and I didn't see it, but I didn't see anything like that. It just seemed like somebody cheering on the race who you know, unfortunately <laughs> severely
0: messed up. Yeah, yeah, just like standing a little bit too close. Definitely not as bad as the OPA. It was like OPA and OMI or whatever. That was a disaster. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you about is why was Quickstep on exposed cables? Did you see this?
1: Yeah, I did see that. And I noticed that there were a couple of other teams. There were a couple of teams on Canyons that also were running exposed cables. And from what I've been able to tell, it seems like everybody was back to the fully concealed internal cable routing on um, uh, Canyon-sponsored teams. But yeah, I I did notice that there seemed to be a prevalence of exposed cables in a lot of teams that normally were not running them. And I'm not sure why. Of course, as we know, a lot of special preparation goes on with equipment for Roubaix bikes. I don't know if what they were modifying up in the handlebar stem area potentially for these riders or if just to make the bikes easier to work on potentially for all the other customization they're doing for the riders they wanted something a bit simpler but it does seem to me particularly going back to the scenario where you have contact between a spectator and a rider i think having anything like that sticking out is just you know it's a, a way for something to catch on something that it shouldn't same thing with other riders it just seems like not a great idea
0: india has this his name is dan bingham he's like a genius he calls himself an aerodynamist which at first i'm like like what are you really like okay the bikes are all the same like i don't quite understand what he's doing there but he just loves aerodynamics and his thesis is that and he's like a real scientist unlike us but his thesis is that the round cables are like the worst thing they're like the slowest thing on your bike so like wrapped cables or cables that are inside the bike are like the biggest gain you can give yourself as a rider or a team. And so it's like wild that like that information exists. They're sponsored by specialized, like probably the third biggest bike company in the world. And they're rolling out there with exposed cables. I, this could be a little bit of a nitpick and I might be like connecting things that aren't really related, but just that type of mentality, like Quickstep had their worst classic season ever since they were founded. And it's like, is that it's like I wonder if they're a little bit stuck in the past where you know things have gotten so advanced, especially with nutrition and rider selection. Like Stefan Kuhn probably isn't even at this race 10 years ago. Like they're like, No, you're a time trialist, you can't race Roubaix. That's ridiculous. But his team is like, wait a second, you can do tons of watts for a long time. Seems like that could be pretty helpful at Roubaix. Let's get you ready to go there. Same thing with Filippo Ghana. So I, I am like wondering like what the heck's going on at quick step. Clearly they're just, if I have like a chart where it shows like the prime age of a writer and then their roster and like how far they are all outside of the prime age. And like, that's, they just have an aging core. Like I think Yves Lampard, the guy who tangled up the spectator, he's been like a featured player for them since they had Tom Boonen, or like Florian Seneschel. Like he's been, those guys have been around forever. And I, I wonder if that, that worked just like, okay, we have a star, we have Casper Askren or we have Tom Boone. And then we have five guys who are pretty good, but they're specialists. So they can, they can maybe win a race if they have to. But I, I, I think the specialist days are gone. Like these races are so hard that it's just the best riders are winning. Like Tom Pickcock, I was kind of like, you know, saying he has no chance of winning, but you know, if he ever starts the race, maybe he will someday, I bet he could do pretty good, even though he's not like a real classics body type. He's just so talented that he'd probably figure it out. And if quick steps kind of been left in the dust by just like, it sounds, you know, it's kind of like a meathead take, but just like better writers, like they don't have the power to deal with modern classics racing. Uh, I could be wrong, but I was shocked at how bad they were this classic season
1: and it's what they want to be the best at. So uh, I think those small things, you know, there's the aerodynamic point of view about something like exposed cables, but I also think might there be some psychological weight or psychological drag to thinking like, Hey, I don't, I don't actually have like the very fastest equipment on this day, and again, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like we saw some riders on full aero bikes this year, which is becoming increasingly common in the past was not very common at all. But as you noted, Spencer, at the speeds at which these riders are moving and, uh, like everything has to count big time. Yeah. And,
0: and a lot of times at Roubaix, it's the race you're most likely to be at the front, like a, a leader. You know, maybe in a sprint it matters, but it's like a lot of times, like Primo's Roglic could ride like a Huffy because he's just like, he's never going to touch the wind ever. So the aerodynamic setup of his bike doesn't matter. But at Roubaix, it's like Ben Hart was on the front a lot because you don't have a lot of teammates. The race is too hard. And like, if the, the further up in the group you are, the better. So I was really surprised to see that. It's funny you mentioned the mental aspect. Apparently, that's a big thing. Like, non specialized teams always have a complex. That the specialized bikes are faster, and they're on slower bikes. I mean, you could probably there's a there's a team in the peloton that has I won't say who it is, but they have a big problem with this. But I don't think they're. It's like I don't think your bikes are that much slower. Like a fast road bike. Time trial is a little bit different, but road bike to road bike. I mean, the game, the the carbon layups are almost all identical. Like you're not one bike is not that much faster than another, but. Apparently that's a huge deal. I was surprised to hear that. But you're definitely on to something with that point. Everybody likes to feel fast. <laughs> and then the last thing we'll talk about, I don't want this to go too long, but Magna Sheffield kind of a dis not not I would not say a disappointing day, about about the day you would hope for if you're Magna Sheffield. You took some polls early, crashed, I think in the first gobbled section, and then finished outside the time limit. That's like a respectable first rebate, in my opinion and probably it's very good for a 19 year old, but he won on Wednesday in a race. I did not watch full disclosure. Debranche appeal. Um, is this guy like a, is this like the American classic star we've been waiting for? George H. and Cappy part two. I feel like you've got a hot take on the Spencer. I, I don't, okay. I, I, I thought I didn't, I feel so stupid. Cause like someone texted me in January or it was like December. like, Oh, is Sheffield going to be a star on Ineos? And I'm like, I don't totally know who this guy is. Like, <laughs> let me look this guy up. And then I ran into a, a father of his former teammate this week who was like telling me about him. And it's like, I've now, I feel kind of silly for not knowing that there was this like American phenon right under my nose. But the, you, I mean, as you know, it's always so hard to judge. It's like, guys, we've, America's the, the king of fast juniors who do nothing in the world tour. So I, I would kind of am just cynical about every American up and coming star. Like, yeah, sure. They're going to be great in three years. That's what we always say, but he's really seemed to come in. I mean, to win, he, I think he has two pro wins already. I that at 19 years old. That's really impressive.
1: Yeah. And I think we've seen this across the world tour. And I think this is another disruption and transformation that's happened as training and nutrition information has become democratized. And I think actually some of the information that's come out in recent weeks, which is not really that new on the sports science side, like people have been training their guts to be able to absorb more carbohydrate and using a mixture of different forms of carbohydrate, specifically maltodextrin, fructose, and, uh, There's one other one that I'm not remembering, but it's in the scratch, like super carb drink. I have a bag of it somewhere that I haven't tried yet. It's highly branched something. Um, But basically, you know, you can train your gut to absorb over 100 grams of carb per hour. And there's also probably an actual genetically determined limit. As we learned in the last two weeks, when the information came out about Matthew Vanderpool's fueling at Flanders, I think he's on the very upper border of that. I think he's like 120 grams of carb per hour. And for any normal human being, if you want to go out and try to consume 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour for five or six hours and see how you feel, please spend send Spencer myself a note (coughs) and let us know how you feel. If you can do that, then you might be a world tour athlete, but they're now saying that that's, you know, on par with your genetic potential and, limits and other physiological areas. So I think as that information becomes more widely circulated available to athletes at a younger age, just as we've seen with, you know, if there are decades of power meter based training data, now most coaches have access to that kids at a young age can have that. But the thing that's changing is now we have very young people coming into the sport and then going to the very, very top of the sport. Some of them are complete, you know, uh, outliers like Pojakar, Evan Pohl, although we'll see how things pan out over time, right? If he goes to the very, very top, but indisputably, he's an incredibly impressive writer at a very young age. And, you know, historically Americans, the big gating factor has been, can they live the pro cycling lifestyle? And it is a very, very, it's a tough life. Like you're spending a long time, you know, 10 or 11 months out of the year away from your family A lot of it in hotels or at high altitude camps and not everyone is capable of, uh, psychologically and emotionally doing that. But I think that, yeah, he absolutely could be the next, um, George hencappy. I mean, the loyal Lieutenant shoes are, are large. His palmaras are impressive, uh, big shoes to fill, but I think that this could be the beginning of a blossoming.
0: I don't even want to say anything. I'm like so scarred at this point. Like I'll just shut my mouth and see what happens. I I feel like we're just like dooming him Amer- anytime we're like, yeah, this guy's going to be the next Lance Armstrong. It's just like, oh, that's when their career completely, completely dries up. And I think people would be, this is completely off topic. But like, if you go back and look at Andrew Tulansky and TJ Van Garderen's early results or like maybe mid prime results, they were good writers. Like. And Gardner was like competing for Grand Tour, for Tour de France podiums. And like, can you imagine, a, I, I cannot imagine that happening now with an American rider. So we've definitely had good riders in the past who their careers have just kind of tended to fall off
1: cliffs. Yeah. And as, as I think about this, uh, Spencer, this question of the trajectory of these young people having a lot of success early in their career, showing that potential and what I've learned from my own podcast, Choose the Hard Way, and talking to a lot of the world's top performers across a really broad variety of disciplines. I mean, one of the common denominators about incredibly successful people who are world class performers is that by definition, they're achieving things that are not normal. And in order to do that, you know, there's psychology, there's effort, there are different things involved that are accessible for the average person if they work really hard become expert learners and learn the things you need to do in order to do those things coupled with you have to have some gifts probably to achieve certain things in the sporting domain for sure but if you don't have the hard work and if you don't become an expert learner and observe absorb as much as possible you're not going to get there but also the process of doing that just organically it's going to you're having a very different life experience then a lot of your peers are the people that you grew up around. And if you don't learn how to metabolize that or deal with that, it can have impacts in other areas of your life. And I think that that's where a lot of people struggle who uh, are are able to reach incredible success because it's really not an easy thing to deal with.
0: No, I can't imagine that being easy at all. But thanks for coming on, Andrew. It was great to have you.
1: Yeah, always great to catch up. Spencer, let's do it again soon. Oh, wait. And your
0: guy, Pitcock, he's racing Flesh Wallone. I think later this week, maybe.
1: Is that right? Well, I mean, you know, he's my pick. Yeah, he's my pick for all of the races he starts and doesn't start. So I think he's capable of doing it. He's your Flesh Wallone pick. All right. And then by definition, your Leage pick. But he,
0: he will 100% race Flesh Wallone. They should not even do the race. They should just give the win to him. Um, I, I think that is
1: happening. He's due for a victory. I can feel it. Yeah.
0: And then I am I'm, I'm very excited to watch him at I think Liege, which for years I hated the Ardennes classics. They just it always seemed like bad weather. It's a less beautiful part of Belgium. And maybe I'll regret that. Maybe I'll go there sometime and really like it. But and just the you know, the, I know the winners were always kind of like, it was always like Vinikurov or like Enrico Gasparado. And you're like, I don't like, (laughs) who is this guy? (laughs) Why is he winning the biggest race in one of the biggest races in the world? But now that a lot of the bigger stars are going to them and a lot of the guys who are good now have talents that those races suit, I'm very excited for, um, for Liège specifically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The level's insane. I mean, I think it just goes back to, in this era of bike racing as fans it's unparalleled like the level of talent at every race and the drama that can unfold is unparalleled i think in my personal history of viewing cycling yeah no i totally agree it's like a real golden age
0: so we're lucky to be around for it all right well thanks for joining us it was great to have you on yeah, thank you. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that combo with Andrew. And I will talk to you next week after Liège, best on Liège. All right. Thank you. Bye.